This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thanks for joining the program. You may remember that we quoted the commentary by His Holiness the Dalai Lama who recommended considering the implications of a verse in two ways. He said that if abused and motivated to retaliate out of self-concern, we should act opposite to our inclination, that is, accept the criticism or abuse with humility. However, if the welfare of others is at stake, we should not hand over the victory, but work hard against the abuse of those threatened. However, His Holiness admitted that determining on the right thing to do is difficult even with a positive and kindly motivation. How do we decide whether it is better for our critic to stand up for ourselves against their intimidation or to bow to it? When you consider taking the loss upon yourself, you have to see whether giving the victory to the others is going to benefit them ultimately or only temporarily, says His Holiness. You also have to consider the effect that taking the loss upon yourself will have on your power or ability to help others in the future. It is also possible that by doing something that is harmful to others now, you create a great deal of merit that will enable you to do things vastly beneficial for others in the long run. This is another factor you have to take into account. At times, when it is difficult to tell, you should check your motivation. We can do some negative actions with the bodhicitta motivation and create a lot of positive potential, whereas if we do those same actions without such a motivation, we will be just creating negative karma. Although it's extremely important, it can sometimes be very difficult to see the dividing line between what to do and what not to do. One of the things that often messes with both our motivation and subsequent actions is the assumptions we make about what's happening to us. So often what appears to our mind is not actually what's going on at all. A classic example for me is the Dilbert cartoon I've described in an earlier program. In the first frame, Tina, the frustrated technical writer, and Dilbert are sitting next to each other in a meeting that has just started. Tina, looking over to Dilbert and seeing him looking uncomfortable, thinks to herself, he doesn't respect my work, I can tell by the way he's sitting. In the next frame, she's even more offended and thinks to herself, two can play at this game. I will get you with the fury of a thousand suns. And in the last frame, glaring at him, she directs all her fury at him, the thought bubble above her head reading, Die! 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 Meanwhile, the thought bubble above Dilbert's head reads, Rats! I sat down wrong and gave myself a wedgie. For those not in the know, a wedgie happens when your underwear rides or is pulled up tightly and wedges painfully between your buttocks. For all of Tina's murderous thoughts, Dilbert's discomfort had absolutely nothing to do with her. 
Similarly, how often do we find that when not being mindful, what we assumed about a situation, and particularly the other people involved in it, was completely wrong? In her blog, Project Happily Ever After, journalist, author and book collaborator Elisa Bowman provides a perfect example that actually references this verse from Langri Tampa's text. She has what she calls a karma project, which means working on improving her accumulation of karma by attending dharma classes, being mindful, meditating and so on. At one time, she got very busy and fell off the karma wagon, as she puts it. Rushing about doing all the activities she had set herself, dharma became a low priority and she stopped meditating, going to classes, deliberately creating positive causes and so on. And this is how she takes up the story. So what, I thought. Big deal, I thought. I'll work on karma some other time, I thought. Then my life spiraled out of control. I had a meltdown in an elevator. This caused me to have one of those deep, heartfelt talks with myself. It went like this. If you don't go back to that Dharma class, you will have no friends and your family will disown you. So I recommitted. I went back to class, started meditating daily and forced myself to continually wish happiness to others, especially people I didn't care for all that much. It helped. I haven't kicked an elevator door in at least a month. About two weeks ago, though, my Dharma teacher really took it up a notch. Whenever I found myself in conflict with someone else, she challenged me to give that person the gift of my own defeat. That's right. She suggested I voluntarily back down, surrender, and offer the victory to the other side. I was to do this just because I could. At first, I thought it was an insane idea. How can I just accept defeat if I'm right? What if the other person is just wrong, wrong, wrong? More important... Am I supposed to give others whatever they want? That's like being a doormat. And won't people take advantage of me? What if someone tells me she wants my house? Am I just supposed to hand it over and voluntarily live in a cardboard box instead? But then I thought, everything else she's taught me has worked. Every other piece of advice this woman has given me has allowed me to live a happier life. So I decided to try it, just for a couple of weeks though. At first... It was easier than expected. Someone would want me to do something that I didn't want to do or that I didn't think was fair and I'd say out loud, I'm accepting defeat, I hand over the victory. Poof! I stopped struggling. I no longer cared about the fairness of the situation. I became immensely satisfied that I could so easily make someone else happier just by being agreeable. I never knew that surrender could be so sweet. Then the universe sent me a harder challenge. It happened one day last week when I pulled into the cheapest gas station in town. Each and every pump had a line of about four waiting cars. Oh well, I'll make the best of this, my newly calm, karmic self actually said. I pulled into line, found a good song on the radio and patiently waited and waited and waited. Finally, it was my turn. I pulled up to the pump and got out. The next thing I knew... A woman in an SUV the size of Texas pulled up to my front bumper. Hmm, I know she isn't thinking of staying there, I thought, because just because she's driving the biggest vehicle in the solar system doesn't mean she's going to intimidate the likes of me. Who is she? Stupid? Doesn't she realize that I can't move forward with her house on wheels parked right there? 
I know she doesn't think that I'm going to back up to get out of here. I know she better not be thinking that. I must have said some of this out loud because the person pumping gas on the other side of the island gave me one of those why do they always have to release the psychiatric patients this time of year looks. My tank was full. I slowly walked over to the driver's side of the car, all the while glancing out of the corner of my eye at the house on wheels woman. Not backing up. Not backing up. No, I am not backing up. My Dharma teacher must have been meditating on me right at that moment, though, because I heard her voice in my head. Why would it be such a bad thing to just accept defeat and back up? Why? Because it's not fair. I was here first. It's the principle of the matter. Just because she has the biggest car in the solar system doesn't mean she can go around imitating small car driving people. If I don't stand up to this woman, who will? If you say so, my imaginary Dharma teacher said, but she might just be a gift, one that was sent to help you grow in your Dharma. A gift? No, no way. Well, okay, maybe she is, but I'm not ready for this gift yet. Obviously. Obviously not ready, because no way am I backing up. I was in the driver's seat now. My seatbelt was on. I braced myself for the standoff. If it was necessary, I was willing to sit there all day long if that's what it took to force House on Wheels Lady to put her House on Wheels in reverse. But I didn't need to sit there all that long. It didn't even take a minute. It might even have taken a few seconds. Almost as soon as I turned the key in the ignition, she put her house on wheels in reverse, backing up just enough for me to get through. I think she might even have smiled and waved at me. That's when I realized that she had never intended on forcing me to back up. I'm guessing that her tank is on the driver's side of the car, but all of the 60 million cars that were at the gas station that day must have been pumping gas into tanks on the passenger sides. So all of the cars at all of the pumps were facing the wrong way. And she apparently was not all that adept at putting her house on wheels in reverse. Is anyone adept at doing such a thing? Who could blame her? So she needed to pull in, which meant that she had no other choice than to patiently park her house on wheels in front of me. She'd probably pick me because I'd look like the nicest person at the gas station that day. She probably felt, felt uncomfortable the entire time too, worrying about what I might be thinking about her trying to pull forward into a pump that I would eventually want to pull forward out of. And so it was during that moment of clarity that I knew my Dharma teacher's disembodied voice had been right. It would not have been a big deal to just accept defeat and back up. If anything, accepting defeat would have given me that good feeling one gets when one has been kind to someone else. I wouldn't have felt the crappy feeling one feels when one thinks a bunch of horrible things about someone who really isn't all that horrible in the first place. Don't you think? So I decided to try a bit harder. I pledged that the next time there's a showdown at the gas pump, I will accept defeat with dignity. I will put my car into reverse faster than you can say, surrender. Now last week we spoke about really dire situations like being incarcerated in prisons where torture, humiliation and death are commonplace. 
Today, this example is much more in line with our current everyday experience, or mine at least, and perhaps we can resonate more nearly with Elisa Bowman and the House on Wheels. How many times have we taken a no-surrender stance, even in a situation where there was no conflict in the first place? How many times have we been so ridiculous? And doesn't it just go to show where the egocentric mind leads us? Now, before continuing, let's think about our motivation for being with the program today as we usually do. Of course, bodhicitta motivation is the best, but if that's not possible, please think that you are participating for your own enlightenment. Thank you. Now, turning to Dr. Alex Burson's commentary on the Eight Verses of Mind Training, he says that this verse we are studying on giving others the victory and taking on defeat can be understood on many levels. For instance, if we're in an argument with someone who's being dismissive, arrogant, critical, abusive or scolding, instead of becoming very defensive and upset, we could say, well, thanks for pointing this out to me, and in that way, give them the victory. And that's the end of the whole argument, the whole discussion, says Alex Burson. Especially if someone is really very, very emotionally disturbed, there's no point in arguing with them. Venerable Sangya Khandra, author of the best-selling book How to Meditate, however, in her commentary, also makes a point about staying calm and analytical when we're criticized. She writes, One of my teachers, Geshe Doga, once said that there is never any reason for us to get upset if we're criticized. We should look inside ourselves and check whether the criticism is true or not. If it's not true, then the other person's words are like empty, meaningless noise, and there's no need to get upset about them. But if we check and find that the criticism is true, then we can gratefully accept it as helpful advice for our spiritual development. It is often difficult to see ourselves objectively. We tend to be blind to our faults and mistakes, so when others point them out, it can be useful for us. Another reason why we may get upset when we are criticized, says Sangi Khandra, is that we want to be always right, to always be the winner in any argument or conflict. So it may be useful to ask ourselves, why is winning so important to me? And what does it mean to win? If we fight and win an argument in such a way that the other person is left feeling humiliated or bitter, will we really feel good about ourselves? Have we achieved something that we are satisfied with? And are things really so black and white that there is necessarily a winner and a loser in every conflict? Could it be that winning and losing are relative, that they are just ideas or concepts in our mind, depending on how we interpret a situation, depending on what we want and expect from the situation? In other words, if we have a clear idea in our mind as to what we really want to achieve, it may be possible to settle a problem between ourselves and another person in such a way that both of us come away feeling that we are the better for it. She says we can also remember that criticism has a karmic cause. If we check our response to the criticism, we may notice our mind saying things like, this isn't fair, I haven't done anything to deserve this, this shouldn't be happening to me, she says. But think again, according to karma or the law of cause and effect, Whatever difficulties we experience now are a result of our previously committed negative actions. These actions may have been committed in another life or in the present life. 
We can probably recall instances in this life where we spoke negatively about others. Now we are reaping the results of those actions. So we can say to ourselves, there is a reason why this is happening to me. In the past I must have harmed others by insulting them and spreading rumors. Now I'm experiencing the same situation in return. If I get angry and retaliate, that will create more negative karma and as a result, I will have to experience even more problems in the future. So the best thing I can do is to accept what is happening patiently. Sanghikandra goes on, we might also try to cultivate compassion for the person who is criticizing us. It's quite likely that she is in a very disturbed state of mind and not at all peaceful or contented. If so, we can generate compassion by thinking, she's saying these harmful things because of the anger and jealousy in her mind. Anger and jealousy are very unpleasant and disturbing, so it's impossible to be peaceful and happy while such emotions are in the mind. Also, she's not really in control of what she's doing. She's controlled by her delusions. As a result, she's suffering now and will also suffer in the future when she has to experience the karmic results of her present actions. If we can look at the situation in this way, it will be easier to feel compassion and not wish to give harm. Dr. Alex Burson addresses the thorny question of others taking advantage of us if we react by patiently yielding to them. His take is a little different from his holiness's. I think that we really need to differentiate when there's some sort of effect that we can have on the situation to change it, he says. Or is it just going to make things worse? So you look at the situation of Tibet, for, in, for example. There's no way that a few million Tibetans can militarily overcome 1.2 billion Chinese. And so that's pointless to try to do that. So you have to give the victory to others. Look at His Holiness's policy that, okay, the reality is that Tibet needs to depend very much on China. And so you could look at that like saying, well, they're giving the victory to the others and taking the loss on oneself. But within that situation, how can we make it realistically better for the Tibetan situation? So one has to see what's realistic and what's not realistic. Dr. Burson then moves on to use the example of a friend to whom he had lent money for a specific project. However, instead of using it on the project, the friend had spent it on something else and was now in a position of not being able to repay the money. And so, what is the way of dealing with that? Dr. Burson asks. Are you constantly going to be angry with a person and constantly make yourself sick with anger? Or just say, have it, it's yours. It's like when somebody steals something from your house. You're never going to get it back. And so, wish the other person, enjoy it. He says that when his friend misspent the money, he found it very helpful to contemplate the workings of karma. He says, if you really think of the other person, what are some of the factors that make the karmic consequences heavier of a particular negative action? And it says, the more suffering you cause to the other person, the heavier the consequences are for yourself. And so if I was really angry and really upset about my friend taking this money, then it would just make the karmic consequences much worse for my friend, whom I actually liked. And so, by not getting angry, by saying, okay, in my mind, enjoy the money, it's gone, it doesn't make that huge a difference in my life, then at least I could try to make the karmic consequences on him less, rather than wanting revenge and for him to suffer. So this is a way 
of applying this accept the loss on oneself and give the victory to others. That's especially applicable when we are in an argument with somebody and they say something really ridiculous and they're not going to listen to what we say. There's no point in arguing. Let them win and then they go away. Actually, a very similar situation to the misspent money arose in my monastery before I became a monk. Some Western devotees visited the monastery and noticed the appalling toilet facilities that were there. And they are pretty bad. The toilet block is a number of cubicles with a hole in the ground, which ostensibly falls into a drain. But of course, the monastery being on the plains where the rain only comes in the, on the monsoon, there's very little water in the dry season. There's no question of flushing systems. So the toilet matter accumulates down the hole and then overflows onto the floor of the cubicle and going to the toilet in the toilet block becomes very unpleasant. From time to time all the toilet matter is cleaned out by some of the duty monks but for much of the time it just sits there and is regularly added to. Some of the monks use the fields instead as rural people do in India. Anyway, these Westerners went away and collected a substantial sum of money which they sent to the monastery to construct a better toilet facility. However, when they returned on another visit some years later, nothing had been done about the toilet block. When they asked about their money, the monks explained it had been spent on pujas and offerings to the teachers. To the monks, the pujas and offerings were much more important than a new toilet block. But I understand the Westerners were not at all pleased and were not willing to make further donations. However, this is the type of situation that gives us the opportunity to practice giving up our expectations and yielding to others. Instead of getting angry and refusing to consider making any more donations, we could practice patience and acceptance. But in future, when making donations for a specific project, appoint a trustee or find some other way to make sure the money is spent as designated. This would be more in line with Langri Tampa's text, The Eight Verses, which, as Dr. Burson says, is very much in the tradition of exchanging self for others, giving and taking practices, and transforming negative circumstances into positive, particularly through the practice of patience. He says, This is very important, because often we meet people who are very negative, who are filled with disturbing emotions. Even people that we've been very kind to sometimes say cruel things that hurt us, and do things that are not very nice or are not very grateful. It's very important not to get thrown by that or depressed by that, but to be able to use it, to see these as golden opportunities to practice patience, to see this as the ripening of our own karma and to develop more compassion for others. And so, in this text, we've seen how we can look at others who are acting in this way as a great treasure, like finding a treasure for us to be able to practice with, or they're like our teachers, to be teachers of patience, or at least to see them as children who are sick with these disturbing emotions. Therefore there's no reason to get angry with them, to be, but to be even more kind and understanding. And it's really the only alternative that makes any sense in dealing with such situations. Otherwise, the only other way of dealing with it is to get depressed and unhappy and to suffer. These practices, he admits, of course, are very difficult. They're very, very challenging because it challenges our whole instinctive way of reacting to such situations. Instinctively we get upset, we get depressed and we get angry and feel sorry for ourselves 
and a lot of attachment comes up. Attachment to ourselves, our own self-interest. And if it's someone that we've been very kind and friendly to, of course, attachment to them comes up and disappointment. That reminds me of the story that Thich Nhat Hanh tells about a pair of Vietnamese lovers and how their relationship was destroyed by a single devastating assumption. These two young Vietnamese people loved each other very much. They got married and the woman had a baby, but then the man had to go a long way away for some time. I can't remember exactly, but I think he might have had to gone to war as a soldier. Both he and his wife longed for each other, and when he finally returned, they were very happy to be together again. The man also wanted to establish a loving relationship with his daughter, but she told him, You're not my daddy. My daddy comes every night, and my mummy talks to him for a long time. Shocked, the man assumed that his wife had been seeing another man and grew very angry. He became sullen with his wife and spent a lot of his time away from home drinking. His wife also suffered a lot through his treatment of her, and as it got worse and worse, she became more and more miserable. Eventually, she couldn't take it any more and committed suicide. So the man was left to look after his small daughter by himself. One night, when they were at home together, the light fell so that his shadow was cast on the wall. That's my daddy, exclaimed the little girl. Every night he came and my mummy talked to him. Then the man realized that no other man had been involved in his wife's life. She had been verbalizing her love and longing for him to her shadow, but it was too late. Both his and her life had been destroyed. As Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, everything could have been quickly cleared up if the man had put his assumption aside, gone to his wife and asked her lovingly about what the child had said. Even should she have fallen in love with another man, if her husband had truly loved her, wouldn't he have, as it were, given the victory to her by allowing her to leave him? Of course, that's very easy to say, but extremely hard to do. But what would you do if you found your partner, the one who'd sworn their love for you, had since fallen for someone else and was possibly cheating on you? It is a kind of abuse, isn't it? It's certainly most painful. Would you be able to let your partner go without a great deal of anger and resentment? As Dr. Burson says, we might understand practices like giving the victory to others and taking the loss on one ourselves intellectually, but our emotional resistance to them is enormous. He writes, The only way really to try to break through that barrier between an intellectual understanding and emotional digestion of this and feeling it is to just stick with it, with a focusing on the healthier attitude so that eventually we can quiet down because the ego rebels against this way of looking at things. But if we can relax enough with it, then eventually we start to feel something, because we come into contact with the natural Buddha nature qualities of understanding, warmth, acceptance, openness of heart, and so on. But that takes an awful lot of practice and effort and determination. Renunciation, basically, that I'm not going to suffer, I'm not going to let myself go down and down with depression, and being upset. And so with that, we'll have to say farewell, for now our time is up. Thanks for being with the program today, and please dedicate any positive potential to the enlightenment of all beings. Have a wonderful week, and please be as kind as to tune in again next week. 
Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.